KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the hour, we'll speak with Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon. He was one of three senators to vote no Wednesday morning on a $95 billion bill to fund the military in Ukraine and also Israel, $14 billion for Israel. Jeff Merkley explained after we conducted this interview in a pre- <clears throat> after this interview was completed, Jeff Merkley explained, quote, on the one hand, I strongly support aid to Ukraine. We need to sustain the supply of ammunition and weapons. The Ukrainians need to stop the Russians. We must find a way to get this done. On the other hand, I strongly oppose sending more offensive military aid to Israel at a time when they are using American weapons in an indiscriminate manner against Palestinian civilians. So tonight I am voting against this bill, close quote. I spoke with Jeff Merkley about his recent trip to the Mideast, where he tried to get into Gaza to see for himself what was happening there. He got as far as the Rafah gate and was turned back. We'll talk with him about that later in the hour. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, I want to talk for a minute about the special election this week on Long Island to replace the disgraced fraud George Santos. It was a triumph for the Democrats. The the polls beforehand said it was a toss-up, but Tom Suozzi, the former Democratic representative, won, defeating the Republican by eight points, 54 to 46. This is a classic suburban district where Republicans campaigned on what were supposed to be their winning issues, immigration, inflation, and crime, lost badly. Does this suggest anything about what might happen in November? A little. There's no question that in in some ways, one of the most Republican areas of the United States is Long Island where uh, many disgruntled former uh, New York City residents have decamped uh, to escape the ills of city life. And uh, many of them have historically associated the ills of city life with uh, uh, racial minorities. So the fact that he was able to win in a district which pretty much encompasses what I was just talking about uh, suggests that all is not lost. On the other hand, you know, the Democrats have won every special election uh, in the last, uh, you know, three years, more or less, or four years. It's, it's no guarantee that Joe Biden will uh, climb over Donald Trump uh, come November. And meanwhile, the Senate at 5 a.m. on Tuesday passed a $95 billion national security supplemental bill. This provided funding for Ukraine, also Israel and Taiwan, and some humanitarian aid for Gaza. Uh, The vote was 70 to 29, strongly bipartisan, 22 Republicans joined Democrats. Uh, But let's note that three Democrats voted no. Bernie Sanders, Peter Welch, the other senator from uh, from Vermont, and Jeff Merkley, the Democrat of Oregon, not because of Ukraine funding, but because it contains $14 billion in new military assistance for the Israeli government. Bernie said, quote, I will be damned if I'm going to give another nickel to the Netanyahu government. 
And Jeff Merkley said more or less uh, the same thing in a more moderate uh, uh, tone. Uh, your comment? Well, I, I think Bernie, who is uh, the only member of the Senate to have lived and worked on a kibbutz in his uh, younger days, is expressing a exasperation and then some that many diaspora Jews have had towards the shrinking of the lowercase d democratic content of Israel and its oppressive policy towards Palestinians, particularly under, uh, under Netanyahu, who's been uh, prime minister for most of the last two decades. And I think Bernie could go on to say that it, it's because he wants Israel to you know, become more of a small d democratic state uh, which affords, you know, uh, Palestinians a right to their own state, that he cast that vote. Now this uh, aid bill goes to the House, where the Republican leadership has vowed to block it. The House now has a Republican majority of, I don't know, one or maybe two. But why do you think House Republicans are so opposed to aid to Ukraine? Well, I think there are several reasons. First of all, uh, they are simply doing whatever Donald Trump wants. And the uh, ultimate uh, uh, fear factor there is that if Donald Trump should attack them, uh, they will get primary opponents who are Trumpier than they or Trumpier than thou. And that is the major factor that actually is uh, influencing Republican votes on just about uh, everything. That said, there has been a segment of the American right uh, going back to Pat Buchanan 20 years ago. Uh, that noted that Vladimir Putin actually shares uh, the cultural beliefs of the uh, of the far right of uh, as it were Christian nationalists. Only in this case, it's uh, Russian Orthodox nationalists in Russia, not Protestant evangelical nationalists in the United States. Uh, shares the homophobia, shares the uh, antagonism to feminism, and so on. So you know Buchanan was writing 20 years ago, and I was writing about him writing about it 20 years ago, that this guy is really uh, our guy, and there's a segment of the American right that agrees with that. You know, and then, you know, one of the things that's behind Trump's opposition to aiding Ukraine is, you know, Trump admires thugs. They, as far as he is concerned, provide the model of governance for an, a, a governmental leader, um, you know, and... Uh, there is a certain then growing thugocracy uh, within the MAGA movement. That's another uh, bond that uh, some Republicans have uh, with Putin and with Trump, uh, lumping them together as thugs of the weak uh, whom we should admire. Well, now it's time for news of the class struggle in California, regular feature of this broadcast. Disneyland is about to become the latest battleground. Actors at Disneyland who perform as Mickey and Minnie Mouse and uh, other costumed characters, uh, mostly in the parade at the California theme park, said Tuesday they are moving to form a union. They are calling it Magic United. Uh, they they want to become members of Actors' Equity, which is the union representing 51,000, we call them legit theater actors. Most of the 35,000 workers at Disneyland already have union uh, representation, but there's 1,700 performers and character actors who do not. This union drive succeeds. The happiest place on earth will get just a little bit happier.
indeed. Uh, no, most of the service workers there are already part of SEIU or a few affiliate, a few related unions. Um, I, I'm glad that these folks cho chose Actors' Equity. And in general, in recent years, a dividing line between workers who've been able to uh, form unions and workers who have not has been, are they replaceable? If, if wherever management can fire a worker who is actively involved in uh, a unionization campaign, management does it. But, you know, professionals have escaped that, which is why you see all these unionizations on university campuses and interns and residents and even attending physicians at hospitals and museum staff. When you can't really replace a worker easily, uh, you can uh, you can unionize. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I think the Disney folks who go around dressed as Donald Duck kind of fall in the middle of that spectrum. It's <laughs> a tricky question. Uh, uh, but uh, I, I, I think... The public think about the publicity if Disney were to fire, you know, your Donald Duck greeter or your Mickey Mouse <laughs> greeter or your Goofy greeter. I mean, that is not good publicity. So I think for all of his limitations as CEO, I'm not sure Bob Iger wants to do that. We shall see. And now it's time for today's Trump news. Donald Trump wants his daughter-in-law, Lara Trump, to be co-chair of the Republican National Committee. She's the one married to Eric, the, the youngest. Lara Trump said on Newsmax uh, earlier this week that if she is made co-chair of the RNC, quote, every single penny of RNC funds will go to electing Donald, close quote. Isn't that good news for all the Democrats running for Senate and House seats? The short answer is yes, uh, <laughs> it is. And, uh, you know, the it, well, I mean, Trump's whole political philosophy is whatever benefits me is what we should do. Uh, it, it, it's not in that sense uh, an ideology. And, uh, you know, and honestly, what you, the way you're seeing Republicans vote in Congress is uh, to the degree that they have any ideology, uh, they uh, subordinate it to this Trumpian uh, imperative. And uh, so the uh, Republican National Committee may, uh, you know, uh, become part of that submission to the uh, individual imperative. I mean, Trump is obviously upset with the current chair, uh, Ronna McDaniel, uh, because, uh, you know, she can't really devote official R, uh, RNC funds solely to Trump, while Nikki Haley is still uh, an active candidate, and that has infuriated Trump and uh, provided a point of entry, I guess, for his daughter-in-law. Of course, a few Republicans did protest, hey, what about our Senate and House campaigns? And the answer from the Trump campaign was, well, if Trump wins, everybody wins. Uh, except when they don't. Uh, and so that's not going to to satisfy uh, those who have already objected. Do we have time for a Franklin Roosevelt sweeping in everyone's story? Yes, I think we do. Now, there is a famous story about uh, the Democratic Party boss in Brownsville, East New York, Brooklyn in the 1930s. Uh, this was a district that uh, in, in the 1936 Roosevelt re-election campaign voted for Roosevelt by about 60,000 to 2,000. It was as democratic 
as was humanly possible. Apparently during that election campaign, there was like one candidate for state assembly who was getting nervous, a Democratic candidate, the nominee, that uh, he, he didn't see his name posted anywhere in the, uh, uh, in the district. And so he went to the boss of that district and said, look, where's my campaign? And, and the, the boss said, you ever see the Staten Island Ferry uh, coming to dock at, uh, at, 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 at the pier in New York? And the guy said, yeah. And he said, and there's a lot of garbage, there's a lot of crap, there's a lot of schmutz in the water there. But when the ferry comes in, it sweeps it all up to the dock. And the assembly candidate said, yeah. And uh, the boss said, well, Franklin Roosevelt is the ferry and you're the crap in the water. You'll be swept <laughs> in. Don't worry about it. So that seems to be, in a more programmatic way, the uh, uh, response of the Trump campaign to those who object to spending all uh, the RNC money on Trump himself. Finally today, I want to introduce a new feature, 100 Years Ago Today. 100 years ago this spring, uh, you have recently pointed out in a wonderful piece at prospect.org, uh, it will be the 100th anniversary of the law that closed off immigration from Central, Southern, and Eastern Europe. So no more Catholic immigrants from Italy and Poland, no more Jews from Russia and Eastern Europe. Uh, this was a huge moment in our history. It was. I mean, uh, it, it really, uh, it, it lasted for 40 years until the immigration law was... Uh, made less, you know, white Protestant friendly uh, during the Great Society uh, legislation uh, cascade of 1965. And it really marked, you know, the height of uh, the second iteration of the KKK, which was really directed as much against immigrants and Catholics and Slavs and Jews uh, as it was against blacks. I mean, at that point, the KKK had more members in northern states and it tore the Democratic Party asunder at the also 100 years ago at the 1924 Democratic Convention, where, you know, the two factions of the very diverse big cities and the very uh, white Protestant, uh, white South and white uh, mountain states and West could not agree on a presidential candidate, which in those days took a two thirds vote of the convention and 103 ballots before they could resolve this. So this was really the height of the anti-immigrant backlash, which we're seeing a version of again now. And 100 years ago in 1924, you point out there was also a kind of a cultural front in this larger battle over the place of immigrants in American life. You call a particular concert a landmark in the rise of the culture of American urban diversity. Now tell us about that. Well, Monday of this week marked the 100th anniversary of the concert at Aeolian Hall, where Paul Whiteman's uh, sort of kind of jazz uh, big band had commissioned a bunch of new pieces. And the highlight of that was a new piece by George Gershwin, uh, which his brother said, well, let's call it Rhapsody in Blue, and which really sounded a kind of definitive note of, you know, the whole polyglot diverse world of urban America that the, the Gershwins, you know, knew uh, in their bones. Uh, Ira, his brother, once said that they had lived because uh, their father <laughs> kept opening small businesses and moved their home to wherever it was near to it. They had lived in 25 different um, places in Manhattan and three in Brooklyn 
between the year of George's birth and his 18th birthday. Mm. So this was new. This was New York's trolley clangs and uh, blues piano players up in Harlem, uh, and the klezmer noise of uh, uh, you know their their ancestral heritage coming together in one ingenious concoction called Rhapsody in Blue, which premiered on February 12, 1924, at this concert at Aeolian Hall, and really you know, established George Gershwin as, you know, one of the voices of urban America at a time when uh, there was, you know, really <laughs> a war going on, as there is today between urban and rural America. Well, we have the very first recording of Rhapsody in Blue, featuring George Gershwin himself on piano, with the original group from that historic moment at Aeolian Hall, the Paul Whiteman Orchestra. This is, you know, all credit to uh, Google and the internet and our friends, whoever they are, who find these things and put them up. Uh, let's listen right now. Recorded 100 years ago in 1924 with George Gershwin on the piano, the very first recording of Rhapsody in Blue. George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, a landmark in the rise of the culture of American urban diversity. Harold, how does this sound to you today? It, it always sounds great, although the initial recording is not, you know, for a full orchestra, which is what we've become used to. Uh, you know, uh, Paul Whiteman had quite a nice big band, but it was not a full orchestra. The opening clarinet wail, the glissando uh, by uh, Russ Gorman, George knew that uh, Russ was this extraordinary clarinet player who could do this opening, opening whale, and it's 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 just you know the, the perhaps the most electrifying beginning of uh, any American musical composition that I know, popular or classical, and of course Gershwin's career uh, encompasses both. A landmark in the rise of the culture of American urban diversity. George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, a hundred years ago this week. Harold Meyerson wrote about it at prospect.org. Harold, special thanks for that 1924 anniversary piece. And thanks for talking with us today. It's always great to be here, John. the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon was recently honored by The Nation magazine as one of the progressives who give us hope in 2024. 
He was one of the first members of the Senate to call for a ceasefire in Gaza. He's also one of the Senate leaders of the climate movement, and he's fought for humane and responsible approaches to immigration, including paths to citizenship for undocumented people. Now he's got a new book out. It's called Filibustered, How to Fix the Broken Senate and Save America. He was one of three senators to vote no Wednesday morning on a $95 billion bill to fund the military in Ukraine and also Israel, $14 billion for Israel. After this interview was completed, Jeff Merkley explained, quote, on the one hand, I strongly support aid to Ukraine. We need to sustain the supply of ammunition and wep weapons. The Ukrainians need to stop the Russians. We must find a way to get this done. On the other hand, I strongly oppose sending more offensive military aid to Israel at a time when they are using American weapons in an indiscriminate manner against Palestinian civilians. So tonight I am voting against this bill, close quote. I spoke with Jeff Merkley about his recent trip to the Mideast, where he tried to get into Gaza to see for himself what was happening there. He got as far as the Rafah gate and was turned back. We reached him today in our nation's capital. It's an honor and a pleasure to say, Jeff Merkley, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you so much, John. Good to be with you. Well, let's start with America's support for Israel's war in Gaza. Two weeks ago, the Senate voted against a measure introduced by Bernie Sanders that would have made military aid to Israel conditional on whether the Israeli government is violating human rights in its war in Gaza. The vote was 72 against, 11 in favor. You were one of the 11. First of all, was this a proposal to cut funding for Israel's war in Gaza? Actually, all this measure did was, was require a report within 30 days on the humanitarian circumstances as impacted by the war. I think the argument for fully understanding the impact of what's going on in Gaza is extremely important. Uh, it's really a, a moral responsibility for us as Israel's premier partner, as a top provider of financial aid and top provider of military assistance uh, to understand exactly uh, what we are tied into. And particularly as we resupplied uh, weapons to Israel in the middle of the, the conflict and did so, the administration did so, bypassing Congress. The circumstances that we now see in, in Gaza, the result of deliberate choices by the Netanyahu government to allow only a trickle of AIDS. So hunger has progressed to where 90% of the population gets less than a meal per day. A huge amount of water contamination. A lot of the population does not have clean water, which is a precursor to, to disease, illness, so forth. Uh, you have a um, tremendous number of um, injuries from the bombing. Of course, a tremendous number of deaths, some more than 26,000, more than 18,000 women and children, two to three times that many in terms of serious injuries. Uh, the vast bulk of the hospitals shut down, only 14 remaining, often not having antibiotics, not having anesthesia, not having the medical equipment they need, not even having the food to feed their patients, a point that was made to doctors who came out of, out of Gaza when I was at uh, uh, Rafa Gate. It's so hard to get food and water and medical supplies through Rafa Gate, or through Karom Shalom Gate. But once they're inside, it's so hard to get it delivered without deconfliction. Uh, and by deconfliction, I mean 
basically coordinating with the suspension of military activities along the path to warehouses so that so that supplies can be safely delivered to hospitals and warehouses. You combine all this together, and the humanitarian workers who have been in the worst conflict zones in the world told Senator Van Hollen and me that this was far worse than anything they'd ever seen anywhere. So you have been to the Rafah crossing. This is between Gaza and Egypt. It's one of the very few ways to get into, for anyone to get into Gaza. Tell us a little more about your, your visit there. Well, Senator Van Hollen and I felt like we should really try to understand the humanitarian issues. And the best way to do that is to go to Gaza. We tried to get into Gaza. We tried every possible strategy. But quite frankly, none of the governments wanted to risk letting two senators in. We were the only two members of Congress, I believe, who have made it to Rafah Gate. At Rafah Gate, you can talk to the people who are coming out of Gaza through the gate. You can talk to the truck drivers waiting to get in. You can talk to all the humanitarian aid workers who have, are seasoned professionals about what's going on inside. So it was a powerful insight. And what came out of that was an understanding of the many, many barriers that Israel has set up to efficient delivery of aid. Truck drivers who have to stay with their truck for a week from the time they pick up a load, get it inspected, and get permission to, to enter into Gaza. And then great difficulty transferring to Palestinian trucks. They don't want their own trucks damaged. Palestinian trucks, Palestinian drivers who know the area. Those drivers have an enormous difficulty uh, figuring out how they can safely deliver aid. The result is that even though there have been some modest improvements like opening Karam Shalom, the number of trucks stayed way too low to provide the basic necessities. Uh, so that is the big message uh, that uh, it, is a, it is a clear strategy, both in terms of a convoluted inspection process and a failure in deconfliction to make it very hard to deliberate. You called for a ceasefire back in mid-November. You were only the second senator to do that. Dick Durbin of Illinois was the first. Even now, in February, only five senators have called for a ceasefire. The five, just not include Elizabeth Warren, do not include Bernie Sanders. Is there any prospects for more support in the Senate for a ceasefire? You know, the call for a cessation of hostilities has come with many different words. Some have used the term humanitarian pause. Some have called for cessation of hostilities. Some have called for a ceasefire with conditions. Uh, and in, in, indeed, no ceasefire would be sustainable if there's not a release of, of, of hostages, if there's not a transition in terms of uh, Hamas controlling uh, Gaza. So the, the reason I wanted to use the term ceasefire was because of the horrific damage to civilians. The US time and time and time again called on the Netanyahu government to use a much more targeted uh, approach. You know, the US went through this in Fallujah. We use an untargeted approach and then stopped and said, no, this is not okay. The amount of damage that's being done to civilians and then spent months working out a much more targeted strategy uh, in that war. But despite uh, the president, President Biden, and the Secretary of State, Lincoln, and Secretary of Defense, Austin, and many other members of the, the Biden team really weighing in, Israel has said, no, we're going to continue this strategy with its massive uh, civilian casualties, massive hunger, massive potential for disease, because that's what we want to do. So they've just basically given the stiff arm uh, to the Biden administration. It's why I'm now calling on the Biden administration uh, 
to launch Operation Gaza Rescue. That is direct provision of aid to the hospitals, the 14 remaining hospitals, direct provision of food and water at various points along the 40-mile coastline, because we are tied into this catastrophic humanitarian collapse in Gaza. And we all have a responsibility to say we tried to solve it through guiding and encouraging, urging Israel to change its strategy. That has failed. That has failed, and we are going to directly intervene now and supply massive quantities using our military assets for sea-to-shore delivery. Young people, of course, have been the people in the streets demanding a ceasefire. And uh, in the past, young people have been a crucial part of democratic victories, going back to uh, Obama. But now a lot of young people say they won't vote for Joe Biden in November because of his support for uh, Israel's war on civilians uh, in Gaza. A lot of young people call it a war crime. Many are calling it genocide. Uh, what do you say to them about voting for Biden in November? Well, I think our, our young folks are very attuned to the issues of, of justice. Uh, they're very attuned through the Me Too movement uh, for the treatment of women, very attuned to the treatment of minorities, in, including Black Lives Matter. And they see that you have a, a powerful player and a weak player. And the powerful player is, is Israel, and the weak player are the Palestinians. And to see this level of carnage inflicted on civilians is just shocking to them, as it's shocking to me and to many Americans. But our younger Americans particularly are, what is going on here? Wait, we're supposed to be the folks on the side of stopping humanitarian disasters, not contributing to those disasters. And there's an expectation that because of our close relationship with Israel, we should have the leverage to have changed this. And again, Team Biden has urged, pleaded, the president would be happy to, I'm sure, talk about the many uh, difficult conversations he's had with Netanyahu. But the net result has been Netanyahu essentially saying, we'll adjust a few little things to make you happy. But you know what? In the big picture, we're saying no. We're going to continue absolutely trickle of aid insufficient to meet the demands of 2.2 million people with huge percent who are uh, are d dislocated um, and uh, huge percent hungry, huge percent not having water, huge percent suffering from injuries and, uh, and not having the medical care they need. So let's talk about Senate politics, something you've devoted a lot of your time to over the last decade. In your new book, Filibustered, you call the Senate a disillusionment factory. Please explain. When you're campaigning for office, if you're running because you believe in a certain set of factors, you say, well, here are the healthcare policies I, I want to pursue. And here's how we can do better for education. And here's how we can be, do better on civil rights and voting rights and, and housing, which is so exorbitantly expensive. And, and yes, we can tackle climate. We can have better policies in the environment, better policy climate. But all of that is a mirage because in the Senate, when Democrats are elected to majority, they do not still have 60 votes, which is this number that's required to close debate on a policy bill. I was at an event at John Legend's house, and after several 
Senate candidates have presented uh, their vision of what they're fighting for. He said, how are you going to accomplish this um, given the filibuster? And uh, his question was exactly the question that should be asked everywhere in every meeting with people running for the Senate is, uh, you have this vision, but are you going to reform the filibuster so you actually have a chance to implement these laws? And there is a cycle in democracy, a vision laid out by candidates, you elect them, they have a majority, they do the laws that they said they, they, they were going to, to implement. And then you, if you like what they did, you reelect them. If you don't, you throw the bums out. And that cycle is completely broken. Now on the Republican side, that cycle is not broken because Republicans are campaigning on social issues saying we'll put in judges to basically implement judicial decisions that support conservative cultural issues. And we're going to give, we're going to help all these different sectors of the economy. We're going to help out the rich Americans with these tax provisions and, and all the different sectors of the economy, corporate economy, uh, through tax provisions that help them and them and them. And they can deliver because the Republicans did in 1996 a nuclear option that, that converted a filibuster-free pathway that was designed for only one purpose had 100 senators who supported it in 1974. That one purpose was deficit reduction. And through a nuclear option, they converted that to a pathway for tax cuts for millionaires, billionaires, and corporations, which actually increased the, the, the deficit. And so they can deliver, the Republicans can deliver on their agenda. The way I frame this is from Mitch McConnell's, the leader, the Republican leader of the Senate, from his point of view and his leadership team, they are in the position of saying, let's flip a coin Heads I win, tails you lose. When in the majority, they can deliver their agenda. When in the minority, they can obstruct the Democrats' agenda. For Democrats to stand for this is absolutely insane. And every Democratic candidate for the Senate has to understand this and has to be held to account. Are you going to reform the filibuster? And I'm not arguing for getting rid of it, but I am arguing for a talking filibuster where there would be a lot of leverage for the minority, but not a veto. You know, when I was a kid, there were filibusters by Southern opponents of civil rights, but they had to give speeches. They had to stand on their feet for hours and hours. Now senators don't have to talk at all. How did that happen? Why is that a filibuster? Yes. Yeah, so uh, it is a, a very curious situation because people hear filibuster, they, they picture Mr. Smith goes to Washington <laughs> yeah. for them. The civil rights filibusters that uh, really uh, went on from 1891 on through 1964 uh, to stop uh, anti-lynching legislation, to stop poll tax, getting rid of the poll tax, to stop any form of civil rights for Black Americans. The filibuster, that was almost exclusively used for, for the issue of blocking civil rights for, for Black Americans. And uh, it evolved from uh, Southerners feeling like, well, they had tried a strategy that some of our history buffs will recognize the word nullification. That is saying the United States is an association of states. And so any federal law a state doesn't like, they can nullify it. This ended when uh, Calhoun uh, led nullification on behalf of South Carolina against a, a, a taxes that they considered helped the North, Northern economy and hurt the, the Southern slave economy. And Andrew Jackson, interestingly, because he had 100 slaves, he came from a slave state, uh, said, no way, that's not the vision of America. 
and essentially declared war on South Carolina, and South Carolina relented. So without nullification, how was Calhoun and others going to stop civil rights legislation? Well, they would they would talk it to death, and and but they had to hold the floor, or the question would be recalled. But so you saw this uh, changes starting in post 1964-65, where the filibuster lost a lot of its racist taint. And it started to be used on all kinds of issues. And it's, instead of just being used on final passage of bills, it started to be used on motions to proceed to bills. Uh, it is um, started to be used on amendments, started to be used on nominations. Really, Mitch McConnell is the one who drove it into the realm of, of really blocking all of Obama's nominations. And so you, you have this uh, device uh, which uh, takes up uh, two days uh, you, before you can even vote on closing debate. You file the petition, it takes two days, you have to have another 30 hours of debate. Well, this started to get out of hand in the early 70s. And so um, you had 12 of these uh, uh, motions to close debate, cloture motions. Uh, you had 12 of them a year in 71, 72, 73, and then like 34, I believe it was, in 1974. People said, oh, this is outrageous, almost one a week, this is terrible. Uh, and so they decided to reform it and lower the number of votes required to close debate from 67 to 60. But there's a little twist that, that's hard to explain, but essentially the denominator was changed from senators president and voting to senators who are serving. And which meant that if a senator didn't show up, suddenly they were an automatic no vote. And which meant they didn't, there was no talking required. You could have a vote 59 to zero to close debate and 59 fails. Uh, so this meant the no effort filibuster and with it being no effort, the use of it vastly increased. So it exploded. So this was a major backfire of a reform uh, championed uh, by Mondale and was seen a big success at the time. And essentially, if you make something that it's that easy to obstruct, that that was so tempting that uh, uh, it was adopted and spread and has made just a complete paralyzed mess of the Senate. Your proposal is not to make the Senate a democratic institution where majority rules. Your proposal is to reinstate the talking filibuster. Seems like a pretty mild proposal to me. What would it take to pass that? I understand it's been voted on and came pretty close to passing already. So it is uh, a form, a modified form of a talking filibuster. In the past, the talking filibuster meant you had to hold the floor continuously, but you could do different motions to go to different topics, uh, to adjourn, to recess. You could employ a quorum call to, to burn time. All of these things meant that it was relatively easy for those who argued for more debate. They had to keep one person present speaking, but the majority who wanted to close debate had to keep a quorum present. And so even in the past, the talking filibuster put a huge burden on the majority and, and a very low burden on the minority. But at least it was done in public. At least it was a public battle, fully exposed to the American people who could say they're heroes, they're bums, could weigh in and so forth. What I'm proposing is a firm of the of the talking filibuster that says we go to the issue of debating final passage of a bill that we only do so after there's been an opportunity for germane amendments on both sides of the aisle so senators can re kind of reclaim some of the power they had through amendments 
And once you're on that question, a final passage, every senator can speak twice as long as they want, but only twice. And that's been in the rules since the founding of the Senate. It's still in our rules today under Rule 19. And so that means the debate, if, if, if every senator speaks five hours twice, 10 hours times 100, 1,000 hours, now you're talking about 40 days. You could have a very, very long public debate, but there is a pathway that encourages compromise because the majority can't afford to be on an issue for that many weeks. And the minority has the burden of really sustaining continuous debate and the majority doesn't have to keep a quorum present. So, so it, it creates an incentive for both sides to compromise. But if there's no compromise worked out, then eventually you could have an up and down vote. And I understand that this proposal itself cannot be filibustered. Is that right? Ah, well, you raise an, an interesting point because uh, there are two ways to modify the rules. Uh, you can have a debate over rule change, which can be filibustered or you can adopt the template developed by Robert Byrd. And when people say, Robert Byrd, what? Robert Byrd, he was the, one, the major leader, the defender of the filibuster to block civil rights. Well, he was also majority leader starting in 1977, and the Republicans tried to block the legislative process time and again. And so seven times, Robert Byrd said, you know what? I'm going to make a point of order, reinterpreting the rules so we can go forward. And then he had the votes to sustain a majority supporting his reinterpretation. That is the nuclear option, pioneered by Robert Byrd, which people will be shocked to find out. So using that template, you can, in fact, uh, go forward. And that's what we attempted to do in January 22 in order to pass the For the People Act, my bill that took on gerrymandering and, and dark money and uh, uh, protected the, the registration and ballot box. That bill was rewritten. We gave it a new name, Freedom to Vote, and we needed 50 votes to follow the, the Robert Byrd template. And we were two votes short. We did not get Joe Manchin of West Virginia. We did not get Kirsten Cinema of Arizona. And so we came within two votes of launching the first true talking filibuster. So there is hope. So there is hope. And uh, since then, uh, I understand the um, victory of John Fetterman in, in Pennsylvania makes it 49 votes for your proposal. Uh, Joe Manchin is leaving the Senate. He'll be replaced by a Republican. Kirsten Sinema is running for re-election as an independent opposed by Ruben Gallego. We need Ruben Gallego to win. You could have 50 next January. Well, it is possible. This is the worst national chessboard, if you will, for Democrats in a very long time. We have currently 51 Democrats and independents. We would have to win. West Virginia is no longer on the map, so that means 50. We'd have to win seven out of seven races, including difficult places like Ohio, Montana, Arizona, and truly purple states like Nevada, Michigan, Wisconsin, and, and Pennsylvania. So we'd have to go seven for seven to get that 50 that you're talking about. But it is possible. And we are going to do everything we can to try to achieve that. And maybe there's a miracle out there. Uh, there are some folks saying, hey, take a closer look at, at Florida and, and Texas. Uh, and, and so, you know, every once in a while, there's an unexpected opportunity. So we'll see how, see how those develop. One last thing before we let you go. Looking beyond uh, next November to 2028, 
who will be the progressive candidate in the Democratic primaries? Who will play the role Bernie did in 2016 and 2020? There is no obvious progressive candidate anymore. Uh, would you consider running uh, in the presidential primaries in 2028? I notice the Wikipedia page has says that you were mentioned as a potential candidate in 2020. Yeah, back in 2020, I did explore it. Basically, if if uh, Bernie and Elizabeth had not run, uh, there was a, uh, a potential uh, progressive lane there. But uh, I, uh, I deferred to my colleagues who are far more charismatic and have a much bigger uh, uh, national uh, megaphone. Uh, and uh, my my assumption is I'll be trying to find someone else to uh, to carry that torch and doing all I can to help them out. Jeff Merkley, Senator from Oregon. His new book is Filibustered, How to Fix the Broken Senate and Save America. Senator Merkley, thanks for all your work and thanks for talking with us today. You're, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure to connect with you. Thank you. Jeff Merkley, he was one of three senators to vote no Wednesday morning on the $95 billion bill to fund military aid to Ukraine and Israel, $14 billion for Israel. He explained, after we conducted this interview, quote, I strongly oppose sending more offensive military aid to Israel at a time when they are using American weapons in an indiscriminate manner against Palestinian civilians, close quote. This interview was recorded before the vote on aid to Israel. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Finally, it's time for your Minnesota moment, history from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. In 1902, W.E.B. Du Bois came to St. Paul to meet with Booker T. Washington, Ida B. Wells, and several dozen other national black leaders. They were trying to create an effective national civil rights organization, the National Afro-American Council, NAAC, which had been formed in 1898, the time Booker T. Washington was the most prominent national black leader. He had dined with President Theodore Roosevelt at the White House. White donors supported his Tuskegee Institute in Alabama. Washington had declared in 1896, quote, we shall not agitate for political or social equality. Living separately, yet working together, both races will determine the future of our beloved South." Close quote. At the meeting in St. Paul, the festivities began on July 7th, 1902 with music. Uh, pieces by Handel, Bizet, and Verdi performed by black musicians. On July 9th, the delegates met in the state capitol. The meeting concluded a few days later with a gala ball at the University of Minnesota Armory. Men in tuxedos, women in finery, a white orchestra entertaining a black elite. At the meeting, a group of delegates named an associate of Booker T. Washington's named T. Thomas Fortune as the next president of the organization even though elections were not on the agenda. Du Bois and others objected, 
And Du Bois went on that year to attack Washington in his famous essay of Mr. Booker T. Washington and others. The African-American civil rights movement was now publicly split between Du Bois and Washington. Du Bois went on in 1905 to form a rival organization, the Niagara Movement, which rejected the accommodationism of Booker T. Washington, declared they would fight for political and social equality for African-Americans. Persistent manly agitation is the way to liberty, they declared. The Niagara Movement led in 1910 to the creation of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP. Booker T. Washington died in 1915. The NAACP went on to a long and productive life. The meeting in St. Paul provided a key turning point in the split between Du Bois and Washington. Thanks to the Min Post and Minopedia for this story. This has been your Minnesota Moment, history from my hometown of St. Paul, a special feature of this broadcast. That's it for Living in the USA for today. Our producer and social media maven is Renee Reynolds. Our audio editor is Alan Minsky. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you missed part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at applepodcast.com, Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Oh,